The title for today's message is In the Waiting, God Promises Hope. Our passage today is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. And the big idea that we're going to be discussing today, it's up on the screen there, is that when Messiah comes, we will experience the triumph of his grace. Amen. That's what we're saying again. When Messiah comes, we will experience the triumph of his grace. And this morning, we're kicking off a brand new series titled, In the Waiting, everybody's favorite topic, right? Uh, We're going to be talking about and exploring how God meets us throughout the season of Advent as we wait for Christmas to come in the waiting. One thing I look forward to every year is the invitation that this season gives us because it's the opportunity to experience again and remember with childlike wonder the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's this prayer by St. Augustine that's often quoted around this time of year, and it goes like this. Everlasting God, in whom we live and move and have our being, you have made us for yourself, so that our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Through Advent, in the waiting, we prepare our hearts to receive the Savior of the world in our lives for today. So I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited uh, for all that God is going to do in and through us as a church family uh, throughout the season. Are you ready? Are you awake this morning? Come on. All right, here we go. In the waiting, God promises hope. Show of hands, how many of you went out shopping on Black Friday? How many of you braved Gray Thursday? A little bit? No, no one here. Wow. I won't even talk about it then. All right, how many of you tried your best to avoid it altogether? Enough of that mess. We don't need that. Okay, there we go. Any Cyber Monday people? Here we go. All right, now as I see it, the draw of Black Friday starts with all of the ads that lead up to Thanksgiving on all fronts, right? Whether it's the commercials on the radio, TV, or Spotify, or uh, the host of social media feed, ads that pop up, or maybe it comes to the tried and true ads of the newspaper on Thanksgiving. I know that my family pulled out the good old newspaper, right? Uh, We are inundated by the noise of business trying to get us to buy their stuff because we think that it's going to give us or our loved ones those warm, fuzzy feelings at Christmas time. Now, I am all for gifts, And I'm all for a good bargain. And there have been times where Angie and I have braved the crowds on Black Friday. But every time that we've done so, I'm reminded of the overwhelming sense of hurry and stress and anxiety that that day causes. And this is only compounded when you bring your kids along. Am I right? Parents in the room? Come on. And even if we get all the Christmas shopping done on that day, which I don't think ever happens, but if we did and we checked everything off of our list, by the end of the day, we are worn out and exhausted and stretched past the point of functioning 
to where then we just sit down at the end of the day and turn on more noise and more media to try and unwind from the day. And then the cycle just continues. Winston Churchill once said, you can measure a man's character by the choices he makes under pressure. Now, you might disagree with a statement like that, and that's okay. Um, That's fine. Uh, But for just a moment, if what Churchill said was true, even part of the time, might we be able to apply that to an event like Black Friday or ones like it in our lives? That maybe there's something deeper going on when we see the frenzy and the crazy of humanity grabbing at all manner of stuff, trying to have this desperate effort to, quote, have a good Christmas. Maybe we could phrase Churchill's idea in a different way, saying you can measure the state of a person's soul by the choices they make under pressure. The state of our souls, the symptoms that we see all around us, we see restlessness, stress, exhaustion, and worry. Um, Most of the time, you know, when you go up and ask somebody how they're doing or what's going on in life, they say, oh, you know, I'm busy. You know, I used to use that excuse, and now I realize everybody's busy. So (laughs) I need to uh, change my answer a bit. But we're all overtaxed. So what can be done? What is the remedy for these conditions? I believe that it's the hope that God offers us through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, there are probably more ways for how Jesus can minister that hope in our lives, uh, more ways than there are people in this room today, and that is good news. Amen. Uh, Because that means that Jesus meets us right where we're at, in the waiting, in the restlessness, in the noise, And so our unique application of that remedy for Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ, it works. It it helps. It changes us. And it starts with encountering the Savior of the world. And that's exactly where we're going to start in our passage today. Because when Messiah comes, we will experience the triumph of his grace. The book of Isaiah was written by the prophet Isaiah. Uh, During the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. If you were to look at a timeline of when portions of the book take place and were written, chapter 9 takes place in the middle of a national conflict between the kingdom of Judah, who he's writing to, Syria, and the northern kingdom of Israel around 735 B.C., And at that time, the nation was led by King Ahaz, who did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. You can read more about it in 2 Kings chapter 16 if you're interested. But suffice to say, this was not Judah's finest hour. They were steeped in rebellion and idol worship, much like the northern kingdom of Israel had perfected by this point. They were weary from war. They had a wicked king who did not lead them like his father David had done. And we begin chapter 9 on the heels of God issuing his judgment against the people's idolatry and covenant breaking. 
Isaiah is speaking to a restless and weary people who need some hope. They need to hear about the good that God has in store for them. They need a Savior who would come and set everything to right and lead them in the way of God. The state of the kingdom of Judah reminds me a lot of how we might find things in America today. Rebellion, wickedness, idolatry, brokenness, and weariness. Corrupt leadership on all levels of government. I don't care where it is, it's all in there. Weary of war and conflict and in desperate need of the hope that only God can give. So, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. I apologize, I meant to look up the page number in the Bible in the pew in front of you. I've learned that one from Steve. What is it? 1073. So, if you're interested, it's there. Uh, Also, electronically, it'll be up on the screen. And if you're able, would you please stand with us as a way of honoring God's word as we read the scripture together. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given through the prophet Isaiah. You may have a seat. There are at least three implications of God's promised hope here in Isaiah chapter 9. The first, if you're taking notes, is that God will initiate a pervading change for good. God will initiate a pervading change for good. Scripture reveals to us that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And yet we find in God's message through the prophet Isaiah, this picture of light appearing in darkness. This is the same word picture we see in the first few verses of Genesis when God spoke into the formless darkness of earth, saying, let there be light, and there was, and he called it good. There is a distinct difference between light and darkness, and this dichotomy is something that's woven into the very fabric of our existence. Light is not darkness, just as darkness ought not to be confused with light. 
in an environment that is truly dark, as soon as light enters the space, an immediate instantaneous change occurs. That space, no matter how dark it may be, cannot operate the same as long as that light is present. Light brings clarity and truth. Light brings understanding. Light is an agent of change. Light helps us see clearly so that we can live accordingly. Isaiah was speaking to a people who had grown accustomed to walking and living in darkness. The literal picture here would be of a people who were somehow compromised in their sight and action, where they couldn't see. They would be stumbling around in the dark. But since this is figurative language, what is the darkness that Isaiah is talking about? The prophet is describing the people's spiritual condition with this picture of being impaired by darkness, so much that it characterizes their situation. Specifically, the darkness is their rebellion, idolatry, and the effects of depravity that were all around them. These were people who were not living in a right relationship with God, and they desperately needed something to change. One of Angie's uh, favorite things to do is to watch Hallmark Christmas movies. Anybody relate? Yeah? All right. Can I just level with you guys for just a moment? I am pretty convinced that there are only about five or ten different plot lines that they just keep recycling over and over and over again. <laughs> just with different... There you go. Uh, just with different names, right? Different people, different settings. Um, I might be exaggerating, but I don't think I am. Uh, <laughs> anyway, when it comes to all of those Hallmark movies, something I've learned is that there is always this one pivotal moment, right? There's this part of every single one, or at least it, it seems to be this way, and that is the community tree lighting. The story goes along. The plot is rising. Things are cautiously going okay within the story. Conversations are happening, and it reaches this point where they're in the waiting, doing their thing, and then suddenly the tree lights go on, and somehow, every time, Hallmark is able to capture that breathtaking, heartwarming moment where the characters experience light appearing in their lives, right? Almost like a light bulb came on over their head. It's almost like the characters start to see things clearer and ultimately have a change of heart that reforms their life to be better than it was before, all because of the glow of the Christmas tree, right? And we, the audience, we say, aw, that's so sweet. I want a holiday like that. Honey, why don't we have holidays like that, right? That's, that's kind of the attitude we get when we watch those because they were a people walking in darkness, because we are a people who live in darkness. We need someone to bring us light and cause the spiritual darkness to be illuminated and for our environment to be revealed and reformed into the goodness that God always intended for us from the beginning. This is the hope that 
the promised Savior, the Messiah, was going to bring God's people and the world. When God shines his light, its influence spreads and brings far-reaching change for our good. So why is God telling us about this light that shines in the darkness? Because he's gracious towards us, even when we don't deserve it. Even when we're walking in all manner of rebellion and brokenness. Even when we make our home in the darkness and we just resign ourselves to the restlessness and turn on the noise of the media. God wanted to shine his light in the darkness back then. And he still wants to today. Because just as his light would triumph over darkness, his grace triumphs over our sin. Amen? He didn't have to do it, but it was his passion and his will to do so. And when Messiah comes, we will experience the triumph of his grace, and through him, God will initiate a pervading change for good. The next implication of God's promised hope is that God will restore our flourishing. God will restore our flourishing. As the prophecy unfolds, Isaiah describes the impact that Messiah's presence will have on God's people, saying, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. In the Hebrew, the word for enlarged literally means to multiply or increase in number, so that what once was few has now increased and multiplied to many or much. Such an action would look like a physical, tangible increase that we could see beyond all doubt that it was greater than it was before. If we were to see these kinds of results in most areas of life, we would naturally associate that increase with blessing, which is typically the reason why people go around and brave the crowds on Black Friday, so that they can get a large amount of stuff that their loved ones think they want, so that on Christmas morning, when it comes time to open the presents, they would see an enlarged pile of presents for the whole family to open, giving us the feeling of blessing. Now, whether that's a good or bad way of looking at it, we naturally associate more with being better, and therefore that equals being blessed, right? Just like for me, having one guitar is good. Two is even better, but when I see the collections that some of my favorite guitarists have, I think, wow, they are living the good life. Don't judge me. You have your things, right? <laughs> but I digress. Now, uh, compare this idea of multiplication with the word for increase that is also found in verse 3. The old King James renders this word as magnify, and, it, and I like that word, and uh, it means uh, to make great, to exhibit fullness uh, in strength, to grow, right? It, it's a sign of health. When we use a magnifying glass, typically, <coughs> we are trying to make an object appear larger. When we go to a concert or some event that you enjoy, and we're blown away by the performances and the theatrics of it all, we might say, wow, that was so magnificent. <coughs> Excuse me. When we measure the size and power of an earthquake on the Richter scale, we measure the magnitude of that event. It's a word 
that describes the greatness of a thing. In the prophecy that Isaiah records here, he's referring to a magnified joy. And you might be thinking to yourself, Tim, that's really great. So what? We, why go into all this detail of two little words that describe big things? I'm glad you asked. Thank you. What I find so compelling about these words is this, that the same word that's used for the multiplication of the nation of Judah, numerical increase that Isaiah is talking about, that exact same word is used in Genesis chapter 1 when God gives the mandate to humanity to be fruitful and multiply. Not only that, but the same word that's used for increase of joy is also used when God is talking to Abraham, <coughs> excuse me, in Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abraham and says that he will make Abraham's name great, that is magnified, and that Abraham would be a blessing. These connections make me wonder if the ideas inside these Hebrew words are meant somehow to help the people of Judah back then, and by extension, you and me today, remember how God meant for us to live in the beginning. That we were meant to flourish as people made in the image of God, fruitful, multiplying, ruling and reigning with God on the earth. That this would give us purpose and meaning and increase our joy to the point of overflowing and that we would be a blessing to those around us. <coughs> Not only that, but as Isaiah continues with the description of Messiah's impact, that the people would experience freedom from bondage, oppression, and war. If we were to sum it all up, God meant for us to flourish. And the mission that the Messiah was supposed to carry out was one that restored us to flourish in the way that God created for us to in the beginning, as free, growing, thriving people of God who would be a blessing. Excuse me. Ah, my coffee. Here we go. <clears throat> That's better. When I think about the scene of how joyful the celebration would be when the Messiah would restore his people to flourish, what comes to my mind is the photos that we have in our culture of the homecoming parade in New York City when the troops came back from World War II. Having defeated the enemy, walking along the streets victorious, all the hope and promise in the world, and a free world at peace. But unlike the history that's unfolded since that parade, the hope that God promises the people of Judah was to be an everlasting victory. And this was going to be a victory that would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus' saving work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Because when Messiah comes, we will experience the triumph of his grace. And since he has already come, in the God-man, Jesus Christ, the result is that God will restore our flourishing, setting all things to right. The third implication of God's promised hope is this. God will build 
his everlasting kingdom. In verse 6, we are finally told who the great light shining in the darkness is. We are finally given the names and the titles of the individual who would deliver God's people out of bondage and into the life that God had in store for them. Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. To us a child is born, a son is given. That phrase speaks of a divine gift, the divine gift of grace that the Messiah was going to be. And we hear this echoed later in the Gospel of John, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The Savior that Isaiah is describing would not be one that arrived through a human work. Instead, it would be a gift from God. And so the four names given to this child reveal the totality of this coming king's power. As wonderful counselor, he is the embodiment of wisdom. The Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Colossians saying that the Messiah, in the Messiah are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As mighty God, this was a title in scripture that uniquely belonged to Yahweh, and yet it is also going to belong to this child, which is to say that in Christ, all the fullness of God lives in bodily form. And so Isaiah is forecasting the mysterious truth of the incarnation that the Messiah would be both fully man and fully God. As everlasting father, this gives us the picture of an ideal king who would both provide for his people and protect them forever, much like a traditional father would. And as prince of peace, he would be a source of peace. But more than just what we naturally think of as peace, as an absence of conflict, the Old Testament concept of peace is found in the Hebrew word shalom, which means wholeness and completeness. God originally intended and created us to live in shalom with him in the garden. And all four of these names point us to the coming Messiah who would establish and build God's kingdom here on earth. Unlike it was in the time of uh, Isaiah's lifetime in the kingdom of Judah or the nation of America that we are fortunate to call home in our lifetime, the kingdom of God that Messiah birthed some 2,000 years ago is one where God is king. And God's will is perfectly done on earth as it is in heaven. That means that God's way, his perfect justice and righteousness are established and upheld. As people who embrace this promised hope, this Messiah, we come underneath the rule and reign of this king. And by his grace and by the Holy Spirit, we allow him to establish his kingdom in our hearts which leads us to the truth that when Messiah comes, we will experience the triumph of his grace. Through Advent, we remember the time when Jesus Christ was born. 
and became the fulfillment of all those messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. You see, God will build his everlasting kingdom, and it will completely set all things back to the way that they were supposed to be in the beginning, with God as our king and we as his people experiencing and sharing the blessing of his grace with the world. As it does every year, we are invited through Advent to encounter him and receive him once again in the waiting because God has made us for himself so that our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Let's pray.